Hi everyone, this is Yin, and welcome to Growth and Failure. This show highlights extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up. I'll have conversations with a wide range of profiles from entrepreneurs and athletes, investors to educators, you name it. I love hearing people's different journeys. For me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow come from the struggle, the pain, the defeat. And I hope hearing these stories inspire you to not fear that messy middle or failure, but rather motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. For more information, please visit growthandfailure.com for more updates. And please write a review if you can. They really do help other people find this show. Thanks for listening. This is the story of Alyssa Kerrigan, Senior Analyst at the U.S. Government Accountability Office. In this episode, we discuss Ali's journey from journalism camp to nuclear energy. (laughs) There were so many things that I didn't and still don't know about nuclear everything. And this episode, Ali helped me learn a lot more about the space. We discuss her research work getting her PhD in war studies, focusing specifically on nuclear nonproliferation. Allie was kind enough to break it down for me while also sharing what all of her work at IAEA in Austria and the U.S. Government Accountability Office now, where she does a lot more of the nuclear audits and research. There are so many things I admire about Allie, from her persistence, her curiosity, to her genuine desire to leave the world a better place with her impact. Please enjoy this interview with the wonderful Allie Kerrigan. Hi, Allie. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to see you. And it's lovely to catch up. It's so good. And for our listeners, Allie and I went to elementary school together. She was the smartest person I knew in elementary school, and she continues to be one of the smartest people I know as an adult. So it's nice to see you, at least virtually. Yes, it's great to see you. And we should definitely catch up in person at some point. Absolutely. We reconnected and I was like, gosh, what's Allie up to? We have a PhD focused on nuclear research. I'm so excited to get into that. I don't know much about it. And so a lot of this is my journey to learn more, but also just connect with people and share their story. Before we get into your amazing academic background and your work in nuclear war studies at the moment, rewind your highlight reel all the way back and share with our listeners where you grew up. I was born in Southern California, raised part of my life in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and then moved to Tracy, California when I was nine years old, where we met shortly after that. I grew up in Tracy, California, because my dad worked at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, which is one of our nation's nuclear weapons laboratories. So it runs in the family. Had the privilege of going to Tracy High School and then on from there. What did your dad do in terms of nuclear studies? He's only ever been on the edges, interestingly. He's a geophysicist by training, but worked at Lawrence Livermore on a variety of energy projects and then some stuff that's peripheral to nuclear testing. And he's a fascinating person, and I have learned a ton from him. I can only imagine the dinner conversations you guys would have. Yeah, our dinner table conversations may not have been normal ones. You grew up in the Central Valley for the most part. I'm always so curious how people choose the college they went to and why, because what I've realized is there's so many successful people now, but no one had any clue what they wanted to do or study or be when they were 17 or 18. I would love to hear your decision-making process, the college you went to and why. You're so right. Nobody knows what they want to do when they're 17. I was actually at journalism camp when I was in high school. I was one of the nerds. So I was at journalism camp and one of the resident assistants, they had several resident assistants who were at local colleges supervising us to make sure we didn't get into trouble. And I was chatting with one of them one night, said, where do you go to college? And she said, Claremont McKenna. 
And I said, where's that? And she said, it's in Claremont. That's super unhelpful. Thanks so much. She was like, yeah, it's like 20 minutes east of Pasadena in LA. Oh, okay. It's kind of stuck with me. So later on, when I was looking at a bunch of different colleges, I threw that one on the list. We were down there to visit UCLA and UC San Diego and stopped by Claremont McKenna. Got the interview, got the tour. I remember walking around and just going, I like this place. This place is awesome. And one of the things I loved about it was I was on a tour with two other people and our tour guide. And he had said, hey, what are the things you're interested in? What sports, what music, something like that. And I was like, I'm interested in the orchestra because I play the violin. And he was like, actually, this person over here is in the orchestra. Let me grab them and they can come talk to you about it. And so I was just really impressed with the way that it was a small enough community that he knew all these people and he could grab someone and be like, hey, come talk to this person. I really appreciate that, that it's a place where you can be known and you can get to know other people. While I was actually visiting another college a few days later, the Claremont McKenna track team was down there for a meet. One of them who had also run into, she was like, hey, didn't I just see you on a college tour? And I was like, whoa, I'm being stalked. (laughs) When it came time to make the choice, it felt right. I liked it. It's in LA, so it's sunny. Going to go with it. It also has a beautiful campus. I remember doing the tours and Berkeley won my heart, but I did the tour to UCLA and that was a lovely campus, really large. But I remember visiting Claremont McKenna and it was a beautiful campus. Yeah. Well, we always used to joke that actually the beautiful ones were Pomona and Scripps. Ours was a little more utilitarian at the time, but Pomona and Scripps are very nearby if we want to go for the beauty. (laughs) The whole five college system is fantastic. It was a really great experience all around. What was your major then? Because it was not related to nuclear studies. It was not. It was government and psychology. How did that evolve? I started as an English major, following on from the interest in journalism. And I was thinking I was going to major in English and then go on and be a famous journalist, next columnist for the New York Times or something. Realized pretty quickly that I was actually drawn to things where you problem solve. I really appreciated government and psychology because they were active majors where you can dive in and see an issue and come up with theories for why it's happening, actually try and solve problems through various mechanisms of government or therapy or whatever. Talk about an endless problem with potentially no solution. You picked the biggest and nicest problem. After you graduated Claremont, where did you go? Did you get a job right away? I actually ended up going straight through all of my education. So I went to the University of St. Andrews, where I got my master's degree in international security, then went on to get my PhD at King's College London. The PhD itself is in war studies. My focus was on nuclear nonproliferation, basically. I love how you say basically, and you mentioned nuclear nonproliferation in the same sentence. (laughs) I'm pretty sure no one else does that. So after Claremont McKenna, was it the government research that got you interested more in international security? And then how did that really evolve to then the nuclear interest? My focus within psychology was political psychology, just because of the advisors I was working with and the professors I was working with ended up really focusing in on essentially terrorism, why groups of people hate each other, and then why sometimes they resort to violence, digging into some of the social psychology and political psychology on that side. I'd been working on various issues surrounding terrorism and how governments respond to it as an undergrad. When I was applying to do my master's degree, it was a while ago now, but we didn't have a lot of programs in the US that focused on terrorism. It was still pretty much an unknown thing here. So I started looking abroad because Britain has an unfortunately longer history with that. So I ended up at St. Andrews on that. And my focus for most of the time there was still on security, government, democratic responses to terrorism, things like that. But around that time, I decided to start digging a little more into the nuclear question and ended up writing my master's thesis on nuclear Cold War policy formations. Could you share more about your dissertation? 
what did it further research or expand on in terms of what you were trying to prove? I was looking at how the U.S. and Soviet Union had essentially ended up in an arms race in the 40s and 50s and some of the theoretical underpinnings for that. I took a game theory approach to looking at some of the political choices. It was almost like doing a retrospective look at some of the policy choices and trying to figure out what may have led to them, second guessing it. It sounds very similar to where we are now in terms of applying that game theory. I don't know if there's ever a right or wrong answer. There's somewhere in the middle, but it'd be interesting to revisit that. It would. And yeah, that was the idea. If we can look back and see if the theory works, can we also then apply it forward? That's what a lot of political science does, is looking at historical events and saying, what can we learn from that to project forward? I think it's still hit and miss. Here you are with a PhD in war studies. What do you do next? What's your first job after you get all the academic accolades you can? What next for you? I came back to Stanford for a fellowship for a year. I was at the Center for International Security and Cooperation. I spent a really great year learning that I was pretty sure I did not want to join the academic job market. So I started looking at other places I could get jobs. And the big one that kept coming up was the International Atomic Energy Agency. I applied for a job there and got it and headed off to Vienna, Austria for like five years. That was my first job out of school, technically. (laughs) For those who don't know, can you describe what the International Atomic Energy Agency does, what its purview is? The IAEA is an international organization who have dual roles. They wear two hats both in support of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. The first role that they have is ensuring that countries around the world can peacefully use nuclear technology, ensuring that countries are able to use nuclear power, nuclear medicine, all of those sorts of things, that they have access to that in safe and secure ways. The other main role that they have is nuclear safeguards. You hear a lot about that. That's the branch that ensures countries are not misusing peaceful nuclear technologies to build nuclear weapons. So whenever you hear about IAEA sending inspectors out to places, that is the Department of Safeguards, sending inspectors into the field. I never heard of nuclear medicine. I'm almost afraid to ask, but what does that mean? So actually, there's a number of radioisotopes, radioactive elements that can be used to help identify cancers, treat them. It's not an area I'm actually hugely knowledgeable about, but... I do know that it's definitely provided a lot of life-saving medicine for people around the world. So what was your role at the agency? My first two years in the Department of Safeguards, I was an analyst. And my job, in addition to doing open source analysis, was also to help pull together all the different streams of evidence that we would collect. Inspectors got in the field and collect evidence about what a country is doing. We would get environmental samples, we would get satellite imagery, open source information, things like that. And so what we wanted to do was pull together all of that information and make sure that what we were seeing on every level meant that a state was actually living up to its safeguards obligations. So we could write a report at the end of the year saying country X has declared these materials to us and that's what we found and we didn't see anything else that was out of bounds, nothing that made us raise an eyebrow. And in a few cases, there were things that made us raise an eyebrow. We'd find mention of somebody doing some kind of research. And we were like, we should check into that. That's my first couple of years was helping pull together various streams of information on the safeguards front. My last three years there, I was working in the Department of Nuclear Energy in the research reactor section, going from the dark side to the light side, making sure that countries had, again, access to nuclear energy, and in this case, the ability, if they wanted to, to access or build research reactors, which are little tiny reactors. They don't typically generate power. They're not used for that anyway. They're used for education, training, making medical isotopes, things like that. 
Well, I love how you mentioned from the dark side to the light side, because taking a step back for the listeners who, like me, have really no clue. But when you mention nuclear energy, it's polarizing because some people certainly now like it as a potential energy alternative and source because it's low to no carbon emissions. From that perspective, it's amazing. But then you have the other side where you get the Fukushima's and certainly the Chernobyl's and then people are like, oh, no, I don't want nuclear anything. That's the energy side. But then you mentioned nuclear warfare and everyone is consistently and universally saying that's bad. For those who have no idea where to even start thinking about nuclear, both in the energy side or warfare side, can you unpack that and just say, what is nuclear? And start at a very basic level, if you don't mind. And if that's not too broad of a question that might take 45 minutes to answer. I'll try and do it succinctly and try and be clear. Nuclear energy it was discovered back in the late 1800s, 1900s. That was the first times that people started, for example, creating x-rays and going, oh, hey, there are particles out there that pass through things. As we researched more and more, guys like Niels Bohr and Albert Einstein and Robert Oppenheimer, he's helped build weapons. They basically researched to the point where they were like, this is the structure of an atom. If we break it apart, it creates energy. Number of different ways that you can do that. But we think we can essentially get energy by creating this nuclear reaction. They were envisioning at the time using this as an energy source. Obviously, creating the energy can also create large explosions on the weapon side. It can be used in either direction. Over time, what we've done is developed the ability to harness nuclear reaction in a controlled manner that we use in a nuclear reactor. And we've learned a lot about the best ways to make it safe and secure and build in a lot of safety into the reactors so that we don't end up with issues like Chernobyl or Fukushima. The flip side of that is that nuclear chain reaction can essentially be uncontrolled and released into a nuclear weapon. That's a poor explanation of the basics of it. It's the same reaction, same materials. Uranium and plutonium are the two that we typically use in both reactors and weapons. The big difference there is the amounts, but also the control in the reactor versus creating an uncontrolled chain reaction in a weapon. That's where a lot of people get concerned with countries building nuclear power because isn't the next step you could take that and build nuclear weapons. The good news is in a lot of more modern reactors, we've designed the fuel and the reactor itself so that it's actually really difficult to extract the fuel and turn it into a weapon. When did that transition happen when they realized that this energy source can be converted to a weapon? Late 30s, I'm blanking on the exact year of Fermi's experiment at the Chicago pile. He built this giant pyramid of graphite blocks under the bleachers at the stadium at the University of Chicago. They were carrying out experiments on various nuclear materials, how they could get chain reactions running and things like that, and how to control them. Back in the 30s, they were definitely running experiments to say, we can unleash this energy. What do we do with it? And that's where, in the U.S.'s case, that branched out into the Manhattan Project, into building a nuclear weapon, in part because we also thought that that's what Germany was pursuing. And I think that actually is what Germany was pursuing. And one last very basic question. What is the difference between a nuclear and atomic and hydrogen bomb? Excellent question. They're all atomic. That's another way of saying nuclear. I'd say most people would just say our first weapons, the single stage ones, we would typically refer to as atomic bombs, different way of referring to it. Our first nuclear weapons had what's called a single stage it's a single warhead made of uranium or plutonium surrounded by an explosive core. The explosives detonate simultaneously, compressing the core. In the case of uranium, they would fire one half of a sphere into the other half to create a nuclear chain reaction, which creates the explosion. Over time, we said, actually, what we can do is put more material and inject some gases in there, make that the first stage. 
would make a small reaction that ignites a much bigger reaction. So we can make bigger bombs. Hydrogen bombs have those two stages and are much larger explosions. So Pearl Harbor, that was a nuclear bomb. I've only heard the language of atomic bomb. Pearl Harbor was not nuclear. Hiroshima and Nagasaki were because Japan has never had a nuclear weapon and actually has forsworn them because of what happened at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That's where we dropped two weapons in two days in August 1945. When you were in the Department of Safeguard at IAEA and looking at every country and making sure and reconciling that their reported nuclear activity was appropriate, what are the rules in place, whether then or today, in terms of what countries can do, how much they could continue to research? What does that look like? There are a lot of rules in place governing what countries can do. The biggest one, honestly, is that countries are supposed to declare their activities and materials to the IAEA. There's a fair bit of leeway in there as long as they are open about what they're doing. It's when countries don't declare things that we start to get a little edgy because it makes us think that you're hiding something. And in a couple of cases, we found there was an error in the paperwork. Sometimes the government didn't actually know something was going on something like that. And so they're usually good explanations for it. We typically look at amounts of material in place. The IAEA has what are called significant quantities that they look for, eight kilograms of plutonium and 25 kilograms of uranium, and certain isotopes of those, the ones that you would make weapons with. Anytime you have those amounts of material or more, the IAEA definitely keeps a close eye on where that material is. Is it accounted for? Is it under seal? The capabilities that you have in your state that if we weren't keeping an eye on them, could lead you to making a nuclear weapon. We're actually less concerned about a nuclear reactor generally, because most reactors, you put the fuel in, into a very large pressure chamber, basically, and it gets sealed up. And while the reactor is running, it's actually very hard to go in and pull any of that fuel out. You would have to shut down the reactor, pull fuel out, put fuel in. It's very noticeable if you're trying to pull out fuel for nefarious purposes. There are a few kinds of reactors where you can do that. It's called online refueling. And the IAEA tends to keep a closer eye on those because you can put more fuel in, you can pull fuel out while the reactor is running. So things can disappear. There's a whole lot of work the IAEA has done in setting up what quantities of material and what types you can have, what types of facilities we're keeping a close eye on. So certain types of reactors, any kind of enrichment capability. Enrichment is where you take uranium that may not have a lot of the isotope U-235, run it through centrifuges or gaseous diffusion. You run it through a process by which you increase the amount of U-235 in this feedstock powder. You can then turn that into a metal and build a bomb. Anytime a country has an enrichment capability, the ability to increase the amount of U-235 isotope, IAEA keeps a close eye on that. They want to make sure that you're not siphoning anything off and hiding it somewhere. Those are sort of the big technologies that they keep an eye on. But yes, there's a lot of rules about what you can and can't do. Switching over from your experience there, you were there for five years, and then now you were at the U.S. Government Accountability Office. What's your role there? What do you do? And why did you switch? I left the IAEA because my contract expired. I spent about a year at home in California working on a few projects and being unemployed and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. What I heard over and over was, you should go to D.C. If you want to do nuclear stuff, you should go to D.C. And I was just like, D.C. seems terrible. And here I am. Ended up working for a congressional committee for about nine months in D.C. and then got an offer from GAO. And I thought, they seem good. They seem appropriately nerdy. Like, it'll be a good fit. (laughs) And what is your role there? As an analyst, my role is to audit the government. 
We're definitely the executive branch's favorite people. You can't see me, but I'm shaking my head. We audit the federal government. That can come in a couple of forms. There are whole groups of people at GEO who do financial audits. I'm more on the program management side. So we look at how various government programs run and write reports on it and usually make recommendations about how government programs can work better. Are you incredibly busy now with what's going on with Russia, Ukraine, talking about nuclear threats? Is your workload busier with that? Or what is the cadence given a lot more of the global headline news at the moment? It's interesting. My workload is busy, but not because of that. What I discovered, it's been an interesting journey to go from doing my PhD on nonproliferation. Anytime you do a PhD, that is the most important thing in the world. You're very buried in it. So I'm like, of course, everyone knows what this is and thinks it's important. And then you come out of your bubble and you're like, okay, I know what this is and think it's important. And other people are like, yeah, that's interesting. Great. (laughs) It was interesting to go from that though, where I was like, nuclear nonproliferation is the most important thing in the world to the IAEA, where nuclear nonproliferation is the most important thing in the world. It was surrounded by a lot of like-minded people to the US government where nuclear nonproliferation is important, but we actually don't spend a ton of money on nonproliferation activities. We spend a ton of money on weapons and building them and maintaining them. So the bulk of my work now is actually looking at our weapons systems, not so much on the nonproliferation side. It's been an interesting shift in that. I definitely had this moment of, we might not care about this as much as I care about this. I've had to take a deep breath and realize that it's still important. We just don't spend a lot of money on it. That was a long way of saying GAO tends to get requests from Congress to focus on where we're spending the most money, basically, which for us is on our nuclear weapons systems. Can you describe and share what our nuclear weapons summary is? Yeah. It's funny. My aunt a couple months ago texted me and she said, I just heard on the news that Russia has more nuclear weapons than we do. Is that true? And I said, well, technically, yes, but we're very close. It's okay. Given the treaty from decades and decades ago about not increasing that too much into it, kind of a respectable amount, what is the growth of nuclear weapons globally? And then if you could maybe comment on Russia and US, I read the headlines and it seems like, yes, we don't have as much, but would love to get an overall summary. We have about 5,500 nuclear weapons in our overall stockpile. That's broadly broken up, if I'm remembering my numbers correctly, about 1,700 of those are what we call deployed meaning they're ready to fire at any given moment. We have about 1,700 that are what we call in our hedge, meaning they're not forward deployed, but they could be deployed fairly quickly if need be. And then we have another 2,000 or so that are essentially retired and they're waiting to be dismantled, but they haven't been yet. The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists published a breakdown of all of those numbers. If you're ever bored and need some light reading, Hans Christensen and Matt Corda do a great breakdown of that every year. What's in the U.S. stockpile now? And you can see where everything is. It's great. And that's all public knowledge globally, right? Everyone knows what everybody has. So going to Russia stats, what does that look like in comparison? We're pretty open with what we have and that breakdown. A lot of other countries are not. We have to infer what they might have based on what we know from open literature, what we can see from satellite images, what we know about their ability to produce uranium and plutonium. It's a little bit more of a guess for some countries. With Russia, we actually do know what they have because we have signed treaties with them that allow us to go literally count their warheads. They do the same with us. That's called the START Treaty, the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, which we renewed a few years ago. 
We literally send inspectors from the U.S. to Russia and they sit there and they're like, one warhead, two warheads, three warheads. They count warheads. And then the Russians do the same with us to make sure that we are not exceeding the limits imposed by that treaty. How much trust in all governments is there to this figure? And I know this is a very loaded question, but just generically, there's a poster behind Ali and it's of the peacemaker, George Clooney and Nicole Kidman. And I mentioned my movie knowledge of nuclear activity, and that was all these action films. The Peacemaker was one that was specific just to nuclear, which is interesting. And the idea that the U.S. having a third, a third, a third in each of these different programs of our nuclear weapons, and a third were supposed to be dismantled. And the Peacemaker is about how one train got hijacked and was supposed to be dismantled, but ended up actually being used. How much faith do you have in the number globally or here? What does that mean? Because there's a lot of game theory going back to your original studies of how this all works. And it's psychology, very similar to your work 20 years ago. It is for sure. And that's where even 1500 or 1700 is a lot of nuclear weapons. You can do a huge amount of damage with that. If Moscow was targeting the US with their 1500 weapons, you could wipe out our 100 top cities our most populous cities with that easily and make large portions of the country uninhabitable. That's where you're like, is 1,500 too many? Well, personally, yes, I would say yes, it is. I think even a few hundred is too many. I'm still a believer in the non-proliferation side of things. And I long for the day when we don't need nuclear weapons anymore, but I understand why we have them. They provide the backbone to a lot of our defense strategy. I understand that dismantling them all will take time and a shift in some perspectives. How many countries have nuclear weapons? Nine. I was going to say, there's not many. Do you know the nine offhand? So the US, Russia? It's a pop quiz, yeah. US, Russia, UK, France, and China were the first five. Then India and Pakistan. Israel has nuclear weapons, but doesn't acknowledge that they have nuclear weapons. They're like, we don't have weapons. And everyone's like, yeah, you do. And then North Korea. Those are your big nine. And of course, everyone's concerned about Iran heading that way. But to the best of our knowledge, they do not currently possess a nuclear weapons capability. I was listening to an interview that Peter Pry did, and he's this weapons expert focused on nuclear. The history of his research, going back 100 years of what he was talking about with his studies with nuclear history, countries, how they grow methods and structure and characteristics of what makes a superpower, so much of that is in defense and weapons strategy. Someone had asked him the question, of, can you just talk about a summary and history of nuclear? And it was a summary and history of all the powers that be of the nine that you had mentioned. It was basically a history lesson for around the world in so many ways. If you look again at those first five, the US, UK, and France were all allies in World War II. There was a lot of cooperation amongst them on developing nuclear weapons. Russia created them primarily to balance the US as the other Cold War superpower. And then Russia actually assisted China in building its first nuclear weapons because of the communist links there. It is interesting to see the geopolitics of how weapons spread and they end up going in pairs. India and Pakistan went together to try and balance each other out. And Israel and North Korea, not at all linked as far as we know. An article mentioned that Iran and China had this agreement of 400 or 500 million or billion in capacity. And so Peter Pry had mentioned, going back to game theory, that if you want to use this moment now with Russia, Ukraine, he had suggested that if he was in a position of power or influence, that what we need now is to break up the impending or most likely China-Russia partnership. And to do that would be to align ourselves with Russia because China's clearly, in Russia's mind, going to be the superpower. The whole thing reminded me of the game Risk. Add in some nuclear warfare and potential weapons in there. One of the most fun games back then, but it seems to be personified now in terms of our nuclear activity today. It is. There's an idea for you, marketing idea, nuclear risk. 
I could ask you so many more questions about this because I am so ignorant in the space and filling those gaps would take a lot longer than the show allows. But one last question related to GAO. What do you want to do there? What's your impact that you want to have there? I've learned a ton being there, I will say, because we get to essentially do a mini dissertation actually every nine to 12 months. And so it's been fascinating to work there. Our goal as an organization is to help federal government work better. Our goal is to make the federal government work better for the American taxpayer. That's my goal also. I want to make the federal government work as well as it can for all of us. That's on every level for all of the different programs that we have. In my case, my focus is on the nuclear space. So trying to keep our nuclear weapons programs on budget and on schedule. If we compared our Tuesdays or Wednesdays or just our daily workflow, it would be embarrassing the magnitude of impact I have in my day versus yours. (laughs) Not at all. I mean, I think it's definitely not true. I will link your information in the show notes for anyone who wants to get more education or materials or recommendations from you about nuclear everything. I will make sure that they have a way to find you. I'll pivot to the questions I ask everyone on the show, starting with who or what inspires you? Going off of what I was just saying, one of the biggest things that inspires me is just people getting up every day and striving to do great things, doing great things, even in the mundane things that we do, but to do them well. So that's part of the reason I actually love my job. We get to get up every day and try and make the federal government work better. And we interact with a lot of people across government who are trying to make it work well. It's an imperfect system, but we keep trying. And I think that honestly is the hallmark to me of something really inspirational is that we get up every morning and we keep striving and we keep trying. You mentioned your dad as a transformative figure in your life. Did you have a mentor or role model? My father, absolutely. Tell me everything I know, although he could explain it better than I did. There you go. I've had a few over the years. My PhD supervisors were hugely impactful in terms of helping me consider good questions, think through how to research and how to write, letting me know this is important work, but it's not the end of the world. Again, do a good job and then do the next thing. Yeah. Over the years, I've definitely had a few folks. There's a couple of folks I work with now who I would consider my mentors, people that I turn to with questions about how do I do this? How do I deal with this situation? I've had a few very good bosses over the years who've taught me a lot about myself, how I am and communicate and can grow and how to interact better with people around me. What are you most proud of? Finishing my PhD was a big one because honestly, anybody who does a PhD just has incredible perseverance. I can say that because you essentially research and write a book. I have a lot of respect for anybody who does that. And that's something I'm proud of. And then just continuing to learn and grow no matter what I'm working on. Definitely learning and growing at the IAEA, doing great work there, continuing to grow at GAO and doing great work there. Not sure there's a single thing I can single out, but maybe just that overall attitude. You mentioned the word growth, and I like to highlight people's profiles, their journey. And one friend, an investor who listened to the show, he's like, yeah, this is not about failure. This is like a terrible name show. And the idea for me is to say there's failure or struggle in everything. It's not just one big moment. It could be, but it's not just one big moment. It's the whole journey of someone's life, all the struggles personally or professionally. And along the story and along their way in their journey, you'll hear about some of that. For you, I haven't heard much in terms of struggle or adversity. I would love if you could share one of your most impactful struggles or failure moments and really most likely what led to a big growth moment. Some of my growing up impacted the way that I look at failure and success. 
when I was younger, as you know, I played the violin. I just have to share this story. In elementary school, there was this one music teacher who would tune everyone's instrument by ear. And I had the pleasure of sitting next to Allie in the violin section and be like, Allie, Allie, can you tune this for me? And everyone was like, how does she do it? And you were first chair of violin. I'm like, ah, oh, she's just extraordinary. But anyways, go on. <laughs> I think you flatter me because I'm not sure there was a first chair when we were in fourth grade. But I grew up playing the violin. I also grew up playing sports. I think one of the biggest things I learned from both of those is how to fail. What I always joke is if I was a major league baseball player and I did well 30% of the time, I'd be in the hall of fame. The rest of the world, we look at that and like 30% is terrible. The biggest thing that I learned from both those things is you fail a lot. It's how you deal with it. Okay. So I struck out and that last at bat. I really botched that piece I was practicing. Okay. What did I learn from it? And what do I do next time? That has really impacted the way I look at failure. Yeah, you're going to fail in life. And usually in a hundred little ways every day. Do you look back and go, what can I learn from that? What can I change? And how do I go forward? That's part of the reason I don't necessarily look at failure as a bad thing because it's a learning moment and it's growth. That's impacted the way that I look at some of the bigger failures. I can honestly say I'm grateful. I've never had anything blow up on me, literally or figuratively. I definitely went through about a year between when my job in Vienna ended and when I came to DC and got my next job, when I was kind of at loose ends. I was working on some stuff and I was substitute teaching and God bless teachers, but I was also applying for a lot of jobs that I wasn't getting. That was probably the period in my life where I probably felt the most failure, like repeatedly, like I'm applying for all these jobs and I'm not getting them. And I'm not sure why. And I definitely went through some periods of lying face down on the bed, like, is this ever going to end? We get up every day and be like, all right, what am I taking from what happened yesterday into what's happening today? What am I correcting? What am I changing? It eventually meant I had to shift in that case, I had to shift my expectations for what I was aiming for. And by that, I mean, I'd gone from pretty high flying job in Vienna to being unemployed for a while and substitute teaching. And not that there's anything wrong with that. I was thinking I was going to skate right into something similar in Washington, D.C., I definitely had to start over again because I was like, this is a whole different group of people. I got to prove myself to them. I essentially created a fellowship out of thin air for this congressional committee and said, look, pay me enough that I don't starve. Take me on. I'll contribute. I'll learn. And we'll go from there. It definitely led to some adjustments on my part. Like what I'm trying isn't working. So how are we growing from that? It's led me to where I am. I'm happy, honestly. So I don't love the weather in DC, but. (laughs) Amazing. What does success mean for you? Doing the things in front of me well. I hope that at the end of my life, I'll look back and go, yeah, I got up every day and I did the things in front of me to the best of my ability. Hopefully I've left the world a little better. Hopefully I've left the people around me a little better as a result of that. And hopefully I've interacted well with people and built up good relationships. From the moment we met in fourth grade to now, you are creating a huge impact on people that you touch and meet. So keep that going. Last question. What's next for Allie Kerrigan? A vacation, hopefully. It's been a long time. More of the same in that regard, continuing to work at GAO for the moment. So sorry, Department of Energy. We'll see you in a couple (laughs) of weeks. Continuing to do audits of our nuclear stockpile and our systems and going from there, hoping to contribute and make things a little bit more streamlined, a little bit better every day. For those who want to reach out to you or learn more basics, fundamentals or a nuclear 101, where do you suggest people go? There's a lot of good information out there. Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists usually has some pretty good resources on their website, including they just released the breakdown of our stockpile. The Nuclear Threat Initiative is a think tank that deals with a bunch of 
different issues are nuclear and bio and things like that. They have a bunch of information on their website, including some educational materials that are really good places to start. Wonderful. Allie, I could ask you and will ask you many, many, many more questions, but we'll end this for now. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to see you and to get to catch up. 